As I said earlier, I'm, I'm really grateful to have uh, visitors in the room, uh, folks who are with us for the first time. Uh, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you know that uh, you're jumping in at the end of kind of a series of talks, but I, I don't think it'll mean you're lost or anything, but we are tonight finishing up the book of Ephesians, uh, which we have been in for several weeks. And uh, if you feel like after this is done that you'd like to catch up on what we've talked about, all those are on podcasts or, uh, you know, uh, Facebook video or YouTube or on the interwebs someplace, and you can certainly catch up with them there. Um, but we are uh, we're getting to the end of this letter that was passed around to various churches, uh, you know, about one generation after Jesus died. And uh, I don't know about you, uh, but I have really kind of fallen back in love with this letter. I hadn't studied it in a long time. And uh, I encourage you to read the book of Ephesians. I encourage you to go back and look at the things that we've talked about in the last few weeks. Because I think in a very real way, that book is a good snapshot um, about who we are and what we believe and why we believe it. It does a really good job of kind of giving you a cliff notes of almost all of Scripture, I feel like. And, and as we read Ephesians, as we read Scripture, of course, uh, since the beginning of people hearing Jesus' words and trying to interpret Scripture, we've always had a struggle to overcome. And that struggle is how to read it. In other words, do we read it literally? Do we kind of uh, spiritualize it? Uh, how do you read certain parts of Scripture? And, and even in Scripture itself, when Jesus is still around, you see this problem. Book, the Gospel of John has it all over the place. Almost everyone he talks to takes it the wrong way, whatever he's saying, right? Uh, he's meeting the woman at the well for the first time. And there's all the, all the, the scenario around that with being a Samaritan woman at a well and him being a Jewish male and them being by themselves and all the weirdness that surrounded it. And when he says to her something about getting living water, she takes him literally, right? And living, in her defense, living meant running uh, in their language. So she thinks he means running water at the bottom of the well. And she's like, where's your bucket? How are you going to get this water? What's going on? And we look at him and go, oh, come on. That's, he's not being literal there. You know, you're supposed to spiritualize it a little bit, right? And but it's not just her. It's not just because she's a female who doesn't understand and wasn't educated back in those days, so she just doesn't get it. Because even Nicodemus, who's a highly trained uh, religious man, comes to see Jesus. And Jesus begins to talk to him about the Holy Spirit. And he begins to talk to him about being born again. And uh, roughly translated, Nicodemus says, Ew, how's that going to work? You know, you know, it's going to be weird for me and, and uncomfortable for my mother. And Jesus has to basically explain why you don't take that literally. You kind of, he, he means it spiritually. He gets a group of people later on and begins to tell them to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And that's offensive for a lot of obvious reasons to people because they're taking it literally. And it's hard to know how to do those things in Scripture. When do you take it literally? When do you kind of spiritualize it, right? All these intended images that are supposed to be transcendent become nonsense when they're literalized. And you see that a lot in Scripture. But I think we actually have the opposite problem today. Um, today, I would argue that we often... Uh, try to spiritualize that which is meant to be taken literally. Uh, the best way to get around some of the things that Jesus told us to do or said about us that is uncomfortable is just to kind of make them so spiritualized they don't have any real effect on our lives anymore, right? And then we can kind of go on with our lives as usual. Jesus will say things like, you know, not to be greedy, to feed his sheep, to love your neighbor, to turn the other cheek, to give money away, and we go, well, spiritually what that really means and we do that because I don't want to actually do any of those things, right? So I spiritualize what is intended to be literal, and I literalize sometimes stuff that's intended to be spiritual. And today we're going to talk about, uh, we're honestly going to mostly talk about a single verse um, out of uh, Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. 
And I believe that single verse, if we take it literally, which I believe it's intended to be taken literally, I think changes everything. If we took it literally across the board as Christians, everyone who kind of puts their name under that banner, uh, particularly in, in, in our culture, in our country right now, it would fundamentally change us, change what we are known for, how we engage with the world around us. And I think it really nicely sums up everything else we've talked about in the last few weeks. So let's go ahead and look at the verses again. I heard Jake uh, read it beautifully earlier, and I will do my best now. Uh, and it's Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20 says this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities and the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Uh, the other term you'll see in other translations is the powers and principalities. You may have heard that phrase before. 13, therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak words, I may, uh, whenever I speak words given to me, I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. There's a lot there and there's a lot of spiritualized language. We're not actually supposed to put on physical armor and carry a physical sword and all this. There's a lot of spiritualizing there, but there's something said that I think we are meant to take literally, and I think we should take some time to consider. It says, quote, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. The Common English Bible, which is a more modern translation I really like, and I'm Every once in a while, I like to get a new translation every couple of years just to reread things and kind of see them in a new light. I highly recommend it. Another, that translation reads, we aren't fighting against human enemies. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We are not fighting against human enemies. So I want to say that again, and I want us to take that literally and unpack that for a moment. Let that sink in. We are not fighting flesh and blood. We have no human enemies. Our enemies are powers and structures and principalities and those things that exercise authority over humanity that potentially hurt or help humanity. But if something is made of flesh and blood, and most humans are, they are not your enemy. We do not fight flesh and blood. We have no human enemies. It sounds weird for me to say it just like it sounds weird for you to hear it. And it would be a massive understatement to say that I am not very good at literally practicing this principle. In fact, it would be more honest to say and more accurate that I'm mostly actively working against it on a day-to-day -day basis. Because I'm happy to spiritualize all the love and care I'm supposed to give to people in the world so I don't have to actually do it. But I really love to literalize and humanize all my anger and fear and resentments. I like to hang it on some flesh and blood. I put a face 
on virtually all of my fights. I always like to wrap those fights in flesh and blood because they make it a lot easier. I am a tremendous humanizer of what I think is wrong in the world. When I look at the bad that's going on in the world, the negative, the destructive that's going on in the world, I look for actual people to blame. And you'll be shocked to know it's almost never me. It's great. When I was an insecure teenager and I was filled with you know, anger and self-hatred and all these kind of things, I knew whose fault it was. It was the good-looking, popular guys who kind of picked on me a little bit and did those kind of things. That's whose fault it was. It had a name and a face and flesh and blood. It helped me deal with it. When I first began to take faith seriously and I had people teaching me about how I was supposed to act in the world as a Christian, those teachers were very kind and identified for me who was to blame for all that was wrong in the world. They gave me basically a list. And again, I wasn't on it. It was great. Recently, it was a little too vague for me to be mad at cancer. So I imagine confronting the doctor that didn't listen when my mom said something's not right a few years ago, right? Because that gave me someone to be angry at. I like to put flesh and blood on what's wrong with me and the world around me. I humanize those things. I'm so good at it, I realized recently that I'm preemptively setting that up right now in the pandemic age. You guys probably haven't heard, but um, people are angry at each other over the pandemic, right? And how people are handling it, what they're doing and not doing. Are they getting shots and not getting shots? Mask, not mask. The whole nine yards, right? Everyone's angry at each other about it. And understandably, it's difficult and hard and, and angry. I get it. But as in most scenarios, I've been the hero so far. I've done what you're supposed to do. I've gotten what I'm supposed to get. I'm, I've handled myself the way I'm supposed to. I've been a part of the solution, not the problem. Glory be to Mike. And as this next wave started to come up, and then my kind of fear started to come up again, just as I was starting to feel safe again, I started to preemptively figure out who was going to be to blame if something went the way I didn't want it to go. It's kind of like when you have a confrontation with someone, and you don't think of the cool thing to say in the moment, and then like an hour later, and for the next, I don't know, depending on who you are, day, three weeks, you replay that scenario in your head again, and you think about all the cool things you should have said to that person and how you would have really shown them. And if, they, if I just ever get in that exact scenario again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to verbally whoop that person because I got it all worked out. The imaginary fight that never happened that you always win. It's like that, except I'm doing it ahead of time. There's this version where I can imagine who I'm going to go off on if someone I love gets sick because they weren't responsible the way I wanted them to be. I want flesh and blood for my fights. This week, as a tragedy unfolds in Afghanistan, everybody lines up to assign flesh and blood blame. I've heard it blamed squarely on Bush, Obama, Trump, Biden, uh, private uh, contractors, fill in the blank. Give me someone to hate for this. Because otherwise I might have to consider larger things like violence and my own need for exceptionalism and, and safety and what, the, what I do in those moments. I don't want to have to think about those things. Give me someone to fight. I want flesh and blood. This is how we are wired. Why do we do this? 
We do this because it feels so much better when we have a scapegoat for whatever scares or offends us. It's so much better to just have a scapegoat, right? I'm not sure if any of you have had a chance to read or study any of uh, Rene Girard's writings. And there's several of you here who are, well, most of you in here are way smarter than me, and so some of you will probably correct me on something I don't get quite right. It's been a long time since I studied it. But as I tried to refresh on, uh, on his writings and on uh, mimetic theory, which is what he's known for, and, and basically he went back and looked at kind of the way humans organize themselves and the way they, uh, what they want in the world and how they get along and don't get along and kind of studied these things. And he talked about people decide what they want based on mimicking other people. Like we learn what we want based on watching other people. And you see that with a kid, right? A kid's put a couple kids in a room with a bunch of toys and the only toy this kid wants to play with is whatever toy that kid has, right? And we all basically are just adult versions of that in some way which explains why totally different cultures and groups of people have totally different value systems that only make sense to them. But then he also gets into this idea of how is it that we stay together when all of us are kind of competing for the same things and, we're, and we want the same things and there's only a limited amount of those resources, how do we keep a group of people together? And that's when he starts talking about scapegoats. Gerard spends a lot of time on the important role that these scapegoats play in a community. The best way to solve a collective problem in a community one that might even threaten its survival, is to choose someone or something to place all the guilt upon. A scapegoat. This is from the Old Testament. They literally put all their sins on a goat and sent it off into the desert so that their sins would go away. Right? And so you pick this scapegoat, and then you send the scapegoat out from the community, or you just kill it, you sacrifice it, and then all of us have a common enemy, and we can all get along again and feel good about ourselves because we've got that scapegoat we're not the problem, there's the problem, right? It's a way of removing what is wrong about us and what is wrong around us. And it's something you are, it's built into you, you know how to do this. I, I, wasn't, the, I wasn't the kid that was lowest on the totem pole growing up, but I certainly wasn't one of the cool kids either. So that means occasionally I got picked on. Not as bad as some other kids, but occasionally it happened. And I didn't really have many good self-defenses, and so I learned early, I had one technique, I wasn't thinking about it, it's just what I automatically did. One of the cool kids would look at me and start calling attention to me and start picking on me, and what did I do? I picked a scapegoat. I found someone around me that was a little lower on that totem pole than me, and I made a joke at their expense, turned the attention there, and then they started going after that person, and I was good. It just comes to us naturally. When I externalize whatever is wrong, when we all locate a common enemy, then we can remain friends. We're all good. Whatever keeps it, whatever keeps me from being culpable and gives me a, a tangible guilty party to hate, some flesh and blood to be against and to fight, I love it. I want it. That makes me sleep better at night. At my most instinctual level, I want flesh and blood to stand against. I want someone else to blame. It's why I've had to almost completely get away from all kind of political commentary and cable news uh, because honestly, it just appeals to me too much. I get obsessed with it. I start listening to this or listening to that and then all of a sudden I find myself doing it all the time because to be blunt, what we call news in this country now is just a well-oiled scapegoat machine. Depending on which channel you go to, some point left, some point right. But all of them just yell about those people that we can blame for everything that's wrong with everything. 
we'd all be fine if it weren't for those people. That is scapegoating. And functionally speaking, by the standards of Ephesians, this is anti-Christian. This is not something we, as people of faith, should ever be a part of. All of Christian theology and practice stands against scapegoating other human beings. In fact, the interesting thing about Gerard is he, he was doing these studies of, of you know, all these different people groups and stuff and religious groups, and he ended up kind of coming to this uh, new understanding of Christianity because he said that the story of Christ completely upends this most common of narratives, right? Jesus is God, which means that God is qualified to name who the guilty person is, demand justice for them, punish them, send them out. And some Christian theology still works along those lines. But what Gerard said is instead, Jesus, as the completely innocent party, the only one, volunteers as a scapegoat. Jesus allows the world to locate all of its sin, all of its violence, all of its anger, all of its injustice on him on the cross. And he bears it all while forgiving those who have done it to him. And in doing so, short circuits the entire system. In doing this, Christ sets about creating a new human reality. One body is the language from Ephesians that we looked at already. One body under one Lord, all his children. So that all the rules for how we conduct ourselves in this world fall under the command to love our neighbor as ourselves, which is functionally the opposite of scapegoating. Because I am called to love flesh and blood as though it is my flesh and blood. Because it is. We are one body. We are called to fight, but not in a literal, physical, violent way that inevitably harms the flesh and blood that is part of my body. No, our weapons of war are truth and justice and peace and prayer and God's word. We do not fight flesh and blood. People are not our enemies. Whatever dehumanizes them is. Whatever separates flesh and blood from the rest of the body is what we fight against. Whatever system or power or spirit steals and kills and destroys flesh and blood is the enemy. Our fight is against anything that exerts the kind of power and authority that diminishes humanity and its flourishing. That's our fight. This is what we are for, and this is what we stand against. We are one body, one flesh, unable to amputate one part, give it all the blame, and send it away. We have no human enemy. How drastically different would our lives look if we actually believed this? And you'll be tempted at this point to say, yeah, but Mike, this was written a long time ago, and that writer had no idea the people we would have to deal with. I mean, my gosh, have you seen them? But let us not forget that this letter was written to Christians who had actual physically threatening enemies. Now, we like to invent imaginary martyrs because we're very comfortable and we have it better than pretty much anyone in human history. And we like to feel like martyrs, so we talk about all the time how we're being attacked by this and this and that, right? They had actual oppression. They had actual risk. They had actual people exerting dehumanizing power over them all of the disciples, all of the early Christians, 
None of them picked up a sword and ever fought anybody, and many of them were actual martyrs who shed their actual blood. They had far more on the line for this than we do. Yet the message still stayed the same. We don't have flesh and blood enemies. We don't fight people. We stand on truth and justice and peace and faith, all while offering prayers and petitions. We win or lose to the extent on which we stand firm in those things. Our job is to stand firm in those things. We don't win or lose based on whether or not they take our lives or we take theirs. Whether we're innocent and they're guilty or vice versa. If you are flesh and blood, then you are our flesh and blood. Christ's church is unflinchingly pro-human being. It is why uh, nights like tonight we can commit and dedicate children even though we don't know how they're going to turn out. I'm sure Max is going to be great. But we don't wait around to see how he's going to vote. We don't wait around to see if we we like his personality. We don't wait around for any of that stuff. Because honestly, it's besides the point. We're pro-Max. It's why we can say without qualification each week that everyone is welcome here and mean it. You may have led a very destructive life. You may not be remotely the person you wanted to be. You might be like the prodigal son who has wasted every, literally every single opportunity your father has ever given you. And you are welcome here. Because as it turns out, you're made of flesh and blood and you're our flesh and blood. You are loved as you are. You are loved too much to be left as you are. Can we be a community that refuses to scapegoat another human being that we are called to love and to serve? Can we be a community who stands firm against every power and system and structure that keeps flesh and blood from actually flourishing in this world? And can we only fight with the the only things that can overcome death, which is truth and light and life and unconditional love? Can we be Christ's body in this world? Let's pray. God, we are grateful. We are grateful that your love was without condition. We are grateful that while we are still sinners and broken and uh, in need, that you love us, that you accept us, that you adopt us as your own, that you make us part of your body here on earth. God, we confess that we, uh, we don't even know how to operate in this world without making enemies of other flesh and blood. We confess that this is a foreign idea to us. But God, we ask for your conviction. We ask for your courage. We ask for your eyes and heart in this world. As tempting as it is to make an enemy 
out of another person, Lord, teach us to love them and see them as you love and see them. Teach us to actually believe what you have taught us. Allow us to take literally the things you are literally asking us to do. God, we love you. And we ask all these things in your name. Amen.